time of Reagan and before the rise of Seagal, Snipes, and Van Damme, there was an age undreamed of. Unto this land came Arnold the Austrian. He was a barbarian, a demigod, a killer robot from the future, and he was destined to wear the crown of Hollywood upon a troubled brow. It is only his chroniclers, Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, who can tell you of his legend. This is his saga. Podcast de la Vista, baby. So, Casey, what is best in life? <laughs> I don't know, Mike, but I just want to say uh, for this movie that we are watching today, is this a prerequisite to get into the David Duke University Film School? I think it might be. <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, so, of course, we are talking about, from the year 1982, Conan the Barbarian, the movie that put Arnold Schwarzenegger on the map, directed, of course, by self-described Zen fascist John Milius, with a screenplay co-written by Milius, and believe it or not, Oliver Stone, yeah, the guy who gave us like... An, an, an almost unknown Oliver Stone at the time. Yeah, this yeah. is born on the 4th of July, Oliver Stone, platoon Oliver Stone... Wall Street Oliver Stone. Right. So, yeah, this is going to be an interesting mix of uh, things that happen. (laughs) So, of course, we are going to be joined on this episode by our first two-time guest. He is a... Two-timing. Two-timing. He currently writes a weekly pop culture and comics column for the Atomic Junk Shop blog and New Pulp Stories for Airship 27. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Greg Hatcher. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, Greg is absolutely our our in house Conan historian. I think, yeah, Conan I think expert, <laughs> Conan laureate. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things. I, somebody sent me this little graphic about you know if you do a thing an hour a week for seven years or something, you're an expert. And I'm just embarrassed to admit how many ludicrous pop culture stupid things that makes me an expert in, because I just read all the time. Yeah, so I guess you'd be an expert on naked people, rescuing naked people from other naked people. (laughs) Pretty much. Usually with swords. Yeah, because it's not just Conan, man. It's Brack and uh, Bongor and Cole and, you know. A lot of one-syllable words that sound like onomatopoeia. I I got the whole set. You just well, you just have to have to imagine a guy who can't read, um, and he's in the middle of the sandy desert somewhere with an iron sword going, Gah! and that's how you get your names. And the more clothes you wear, the more likely you are to be the villain of the yeah. story. The, the more likely you are to be a wizard, which is always the bad guy. I don't know. And so, Greg, since you're the longtime Pulp fan, since uh, you were on our previous Radio vs. the Martians panel on Conan, you are, again... Our Conan Laureate. Um, what is your history with Conan the Barbarian, the movie? Because I know that this is something you had to have seen at the time. Oh, yeah. I saw it opening night. I was so excited because I had no idea who Arnold Schwarzenegger was. No clue. Hmm. Hadn't seen anything. You know, I was looking at the posters and going, well, I don't know. I'm. The trailers were worrying me because the accent seemed a little thick and he didn't seem like he was moving fast enough. And I went... And I saw the movie, and I was so I had such mixed feelings about it. I really I didn't care for Arnold as Conan. He didn't feel like Conan to me. And you have to just to not to footnote it to death, but you remember if you and I know both of you guys know Howard's work. Oh yeah. Howard mm-hmm. always described Conan as pantherish. 
You know, yeah. he was he wasn't a big lumbering man mountain like Arnold. He was lithe. He was he was he was like a a, a leopard, and Arnold is more of a bear. Yeah, and yeah. and so the 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 kinetics of his body movement just felt weird and off to me. And, you know, Howard, Howard always said Conan had a quote, barbarous accent. (laughs) So, you know, I'll give him a pass on that, but the, the way he moved his body movements and everything just felt off to me. But what really killed it for me wasn't Arnold. It was the script that he was in because they had taken all their favorite scenes from all the different Conan stories, like the crucifixion is there and Valeria is there, except mm-hmm. she's playing Belit in Queen of the Black Coast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you know, there's all these bits and pieces. They got Thulsa Doom, who is actually a Cole. cull villain. Yeah, yeah. And it was just, you know, it was just a hot mess of a script. And it was like they just wanted to do the greatest hits, but there was no linear feeling to it at all for me. So it's well. What is it that uh, Milius said that he wanted to make a uh, he wanted to make a pagan adventure? Like his he certainly and Milius like he has. We could talk endlessly about his sort of weird worship of violence and and authoritarianism. Um, and uh, what is it? You know, was it the Conan says that in the Conan books? Barbarism is the natural state of mankind. Civilization is unnatural. It is a whim of circumstance, and barbarism must always ultimately triumph. Which that pretty much, I think, sums up John Milius's worldview. I guess so. I, in that sense, it seems like he's he's sort of a guy who's made for idolizing what Conan is. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. I, I could say that I probably agree with the sentiment, but not in an aspirational way. Well, it's more of a resigned way. This this is a problem that keeps coming up, and I've seen it not just with Conan, but with lots of pulp culture pop culture properties they forget what they're doing Mm. they forget what they're doing like conan in in his heart of hearts is a pulp action character yeah it needs to move it needs to move fast it needs to keep coming at you and and one of the issues i have with this movie is that it feels glacially slow to me compared to the source material it's like they're making they're trying to make capital a art Mm. and it's kind of the same mistake that say just here's one off the top zack snyder made this mistake with watchmen you can watch that movie and realize that he just feels nothing but reverence for the source material he's clearly a huge fan of watchmen but he got it wrong absolutely he got it hugely wrong and and if you ask him, if you asked anybody involved with that movie, I know that they all would swear on a Bible that they loved the source material. They were desperately trying to honor it. I think that's what Milius is trying to do here. But mm. he doesn't understand the material. He well, certainly it's... doesn't understand the character, I would imagine. Yeah. So he he's, he's trying to make some sort of capital S statement about mm. Something. <laughs> okay, so and, before we get too deep into it, Greg, if you had to sum up the plot of Conan the Barbarian in a paragraph, how would you describe this movie? <sighs> well, my description would be a mess. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's once again, it's, it's hung on the frame of a young man is trying to avenge the death of his family. He's, he's Conan is... is his, in his youth, his village is, is overtaken by Thulsa Doom and his parents are killed and he's sold into slavery and he 
he's a slave and he bulks up and eventually he escapes and becomes a warrior and he hooks up with this um, other sort of soldier of fortune chick, Valeria, and they have adventures until they go after Thulsa Doom. And that's basically the through line of the thing, but it's kind of a, a hodgepodge, Huckleberry Finn kind of a road movie approach to it. It is a little bit, yeah. And you don't really get to the the suddenly when Thulsa Doom's back, it's like, oh yeah, that's that was where we started. Right. Yeah. It's, it's right. almost a surprise. Yes, yeah, yeah, so Conan spends a little bit of time like wandering through villages, eating lizards on a stick, getting high on black lotus, and you're like, where's this movie going? <laughs> they leave the town, they're going somewhere else. What? What are you doing? Punching a camel. P- punch, yeah, punching a camel. Takes it out with one punch Mungo style, too. I, I, I have to say that when I'm, of course, for me, I think that the through line that Milius wants, at least, is clearly adding the Nietzsche quote in the beginning, you know, that which does not kill, uh, which does not kill me makes me stronger. Um, and, Milius in the in the commentary is always like it's all about the the steel is the metaphor right it's all about sharpening steel it's about the survival of the fittest and so for him it's sort of this just like jack off fantasy about just being like yeah I'm gonna I'll be the one who's strong and I'll kill everybody else well the thing that is kind of the through line of the movie I guess you could say is the the point that he's trying to make is this idea of the riddle of steel which is this thing that is brought to Conan as a child by his dad who looks a little like Chris Christopherson. But yeah. isn't Chris Christopherson? That guy was a weightlifter. That guy was a weightlifter I, and a CIA linguist. Well, if you're going to play Arnold's dad, you probably should <laughs> yes. be a weightlifter. But um, yeah, the thing that kind of got me with that is this idea that his dad says, you know, that you're going to stand before Crom on his mountain one day and that you have to answer this question or you get thrown away. It's kind of works on the same logic as the bridge in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah. You got to nail that question. Um and then you have these different ideas of what the answer to that question is, like Conan's dad saying, you know, you can't trust man, woman, or beast. You must, This this sword, this you can trust. Mm-hmm. And uh, then later you have uh, Thulsa Doom, played by the great James Earl Jones, oh, yeah. says that, you know, what is his exact quote? It's actually pretty fucking awesome, uh, that, that scene. Because I'm just going to go out and say that this Thulsa Doom this is my James Earl Jones role. As much as people love Darth Vader, it's not a role that he can emote with because he's in a studio talking into a microphone. Oh, yeah. I mean, his face. Oh. James Earl Jones. I mean, there are there are only two real actors in this movie, James Earl Jones and Max von Sydow. Everyone else is like a stunt guy, an athlete, or like a friend of John Milius, a friend or relative of John Milius that they sort of stack in here. Um, they're, they're really – and Arnold is, at this point, I would say – not an actor. He's still not quite actually able to uh, emote properly. However, he's he does better here. I think he does better here in uh, than in a lot of the earlier '80s movies. Oh, I think he God. does. I actually think that Arnold is actually pretty damn good when he's not talking in this movie. <laughs> that was something that kind of surprised me. There's moments where he's quiet or he's he has to communicate something with just his eyes, and he does that actually really well yeah. in a couple of places. Like when they're dragged before uh, Max von Sydow, King Osric. Um, there's that bit where his friend looks like either they beat the shit out of him or he was shit-faced when they arrested him. And Arnold just grabs him, pulls him up, but has this look on his face where his eyes dart over him and he almost looks like, get your shit together. <laughs> um, and it it's really kind of well done. There's a lot of contemplative moments with him oh, yeah. where he's thinking. And it doesn't just look like, you know, a block of wood staring at a wall. It looks like Arnold is really putting effort into this. Yeah, I mean, um, he says that he credits he credits that for the fact that 
James Earl Jones, he went to James Earl Jones like and sat in the trailer and was like, I need you to help me figure out how I should work through doing this, which for someone who really like who spent what? A decade of this trying to you know being in and out of movies starting with uh hercules in new york and being you know a, a non-speaking extras in lots of movies it was certainly a huge level up for him to be put on that level with that level of talent and have to play against that oh, level yeah, of talent it, it made him raise his game i mean a lot of it you look at he would get the kind of roles that treated him like a special attraction yeah the way that like the guy who played lurch or uh the uh, Andre the Giant when they'd appear in something. We just right. need something that looks immense and crazy and doesn't cost us to have to build a robot. We just this, <laughs> we just have this physical, you know, attraction of, oh my God, I can't believe that's real. So Arnold would kind of get thrown there, but Arnold clearly has aspirations above that. Mm-hmm. But James Earl Jones is just, I really say is incredible in this movie. His eyes. His eyes are ridiculous. That he can, he, he can do so, he can do so much. I mean, ostensibly, Thulsa Doom as a character, there is a, a, an unstable idea that he's basically able to hypnotize people right yeah that's they never say it and you only get it through his performance yeah that's exactly right right that's you know the the original Thulsa Doom was like a one of the snake people they were a whole different species than humans and of course a snake person is going to have like serious reptile hypnosis going on right oh and that was his that was his deal that was what separated Thulsa Doom from all the other Howard wizards. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I've seen movies where they have the hypnotic glare and it's just mm-hmm. funny. Because yeah. usually there's just a sound effect over it. <laughs> well, and, yeah. Or maybe a swirly effect behind the, the image. But he sells it with his action where you can believe that he's like, oh, shit, what's going on? And you could see somebody lowering their defenses because of this dude staring at it. And even that moment where he kills Conan's mother... He looks away very slowly. Yeah, it's almost where this... he like pities them too. He's just sort of like, oh, I thought you, I thought you would be better than this. He mm-hmm. gives them this pitiful look, like that. You know, it's sad that that. Fo- it's like he's waiting for the person who can stand up to his ability, and of course that'll happen later at the end of the movie. But what I love is the, the his his answer to the uh, the riddle of steel is a speech that I really like, um, not necessarily because of the writing, but I think that this is an example of a performance elevating what with any other actor could probably sound like your average Doctor Doom purple prose. And he goes, Steel isn't strong, boy. Flesh is stronger. <laughs> Look around you. There on the rocks. A beautiful girl. Come to me, child. And she just like walks off the edge, Jim Jones style, and he's like, that is strength, boy. That is power. What is steel compared to the hand who wields it? Look at the strength in your own body, the desire in your heart. I gave you this. And it's like that kind of stuff. It's like he sells that. And it's like, you know that I would have not have been as good in that because I am not James Earl fucking Jones. Mm-hmm. And he, he makes it work. And I think that this was always the thing in like the Star Wars prequels. The only person who can make that George Lucas dialogue work is Ian McDermott playing the Emperor because he's just like, you know what? I see scenery. I'm going to chew it. Yeah. You got to just kind of dive in. Well, speaking of scenery in this movie, I think the thing, one of the things that, about this movie that does age, because there's not a lot of, you're, you're right, on repeated viewings, looking back on it, it is sort of glacially slow in a lot of ways where it's trying to bring the story of Conan along to where he is Conan instead of just being the guy who will be um the set the set design and the world building is second to none yeah it's really good i mean they think they went out and 
basically in a bunch of locations in Spain. And so you kind of run the gamut of them being in snowy mountains, them being in the desert, them being in lowland grasslands, and in these ancient sort of prehistorical cities, you know, some of its some of its location, some of its model work and whatnot. Um, it's so you really do oh. you really do get a sense that you're feeling like you're in prehistory. Absolutely. It's a great looking movie. That was one of the reasons I was so bitterly disappointed in it. You know, it's like they had all these great Conan set pieces and they had Conan um, landscape and they had a cast that was really digging in. And then the story just kind of falls apart for me. I just I can't really. It, the, yeah, the movie there's, doesn't there's not much me. there, unfortunately. Yeah, there really just, isn't much there. And um, the story is actually not a bad story. I can't I can't point to anything. I mean, they, we've all seen movies where you look at it and you go, wait, no. He can't be the killer because he was in the library when, you know, I mean, right. that kind of needle scratch. No, wait, there's none of that in this movie. It just feels like it's a really good 40 minute story with a lot of punch and in your face pulp power that's like all stretched out and made ponderous and trying to make it capital A art. And that just it collapses yeah. under its own weight. Uh, so I was thinking about that. So like. It's strange. It's I guess it shouldn't be strange that Arnold works really well here uh, when you consider that this is the time when he had a f- super thick accent and he had to make sure that he had a dialogue coach so we could understand, you know, an American audience can understand what he's saying. He doesn't do much talking at all in this movie, which is sort of contra the character of Conan, who is extremely boastful, who is very loud and verbal. He's the lout at the bar that, um, you know, when he's when he wants to call you out, he's going to do it loudly and vocally. Mm-hmm. Um, and Conan doesn't be he does not speak very much in this. In fact, it takes 24 minutes before Conan utters his first line of dialogue. 24, almost a quarter of the movie has gone by and he hasn't said a single word. It's a lot of restraint because it's not even all Arnold for the first 20 minutes of that movie. Right. That he's a child actor and then he's an, a larger teen extra with his hair in his face pushing the wheel. And Arnold himself is is really kind of quiet. And I understand why that is there and I kind of like that restraint on one side. I try to sort of – this is one of those places where I'm kind of coming at it from two angles. I'm coming at it from a Robert E. Howard fan angle, and then I'm coming at it from an Arnold fan and just a movie fan in general. So on the fact – the part of me that's a movie and an Arnold fan likes that it's an understanding of what Arnold's limitations are, that they're not pushing him past that. I imagine that he himself probably was like not – I mean, say what you will about Arnold, but I think he's always been somebody who's been very self-aware about his own limitations as an actor and not wanting to stretch himself so far that he embarrasses himself. But he's always eager to push the line of the things that he can do well. And I think him not speaking a lot in this movie made it stronger because it gives him fewer opportunities for his accent to derail your ability to understand what's going on. Yeah, And he has enough characters around him that can fill in the exposition and let him just sit there pensively and act with his face a lot, which he's a lot better at, again, than I expected him to be. Mm. I was expecting not necessarily later Arnold, where he was comfortable in his own skin like you saw in Predator, but he was definitely so far better than he was in Hercules in New York in this movie. Right, right. Well, I mean, you got to think about it this way. This movie, um, this movie took five years from pre-production to actually get to filming, and 
Oliver Stone did the first draft of it, for which John Milius eviscerated it almost entirely. Oliver Stone did a version of Conan that was in a post-apocalyptic future. Yes. That was full of mutant armies, essentially. Um, And apparently, except for a few token things, Milius threw almost everything Oliver Stone wrote away. And Oliver Stone was actually the Robert E. Howard fan Mm. out of of all of them, because Milius admits that he didn't. He didn't. That's crazy. Milius yeah. didn't know he he knew the name of the character. He'd never read it until it, Oliver Stone said. What you're oh, describing you sounds like Milius saying, "Jesus Christ, haven't you read any of the books?" And then he puts all the book stuff back in. <laughs> yes, yeah. right. It's, uh, but it's so but Edward R. Pressman, who's the guy who was was uh, sewing the whole thing, had Arnold locked in five years prior to its release. So we're talking mid seventies Arnold when he's mostly like a like I said a non speaking extra in the background of a movie. That's how that's how much they believed in him being able to like become the persona of Conan. You know. Yeah, but I would I would add to that that. They probably didn't understand who Conan was. They were probably I, looking at Frazetta paintings. Th- I yeah. mean, they say that over and over again. Actually, is that is that he Mil- Milius based his vision of it partially on sort of his own personal thing about wanting to tell a story about you know like uh, well, you know the pa- the survival of the fittest, this powerful guy because I think that's compelling, but also Frank Frazetta. Like uh, bar none, that is ex- that is his influence. In a weird way, that makes John Milius perfect for this because there's an, a part of the actual Conan stories that make its way into this movie that almost any other director would try to sand away the rough edges of. Conan as an amoral character, uh, Conan as a thief, Conan as somebody who doesn't have save the puppy moments. That for Conan to want to rescue you, either he wants something from you. Or you've done something insane to impress him. Uh, Mm. He's not the sort of person that goes, oh, I have to go there and pet the dog to let the audience know that I'm okay. No, he kicks the dog in this one. He'll (laughs) kick the dog. He he brutalizes. He kills two large animals in the course of this movie, (laughs) putting the snake that he hacks up and, uh, of course, punching the camel. Well, (laughs) see, I'm totally okay with all of that. I what I found going back and looking at this again, I actually liked it better the second time around. I literally I had not looked at it since it was in theaters. Oh wow! Well, because I was you know, I was a lot more of a purist when I was in my twenties and easily embittered. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's just your twenties as a nerd. Period. Sure. Uh, Looking back at it, I'm thinking, well, you know, it's not quite the hack job on the books that I thought it was when I was 22 and livid. Um, but, uh, the, the thing that they missed and this really hurts it. And I think it really would have leveled up the movie. Nobody thinks of this when they talk about Conan, the barbarian, nobody, but I think it is intrinsic to him. Conan, the barbarian laughs a lot. Yeah. He laughs a lot. He, he laughs at civilized men. He laughs at weaklings. He laughs at women who can think they can carry a sword. He's, he's constantly jeering and laughing and everything kind of amuses him as he, you know, plows through the civilized world like an out-of-control pickup truck. You know, that's kind of his his thing. It's a little bit like the archetypal Klingon, you know. Like, he's yeah. just there to kick some ass, and everyone else who is is under him is just to be belittled. Well, every know? Klingon that isn't Worf, because Worf right. is the stoic guy surrounded yeah. by people who are more fun. Then you meet other Klingons, and other Klingons are, like, singing all the time. Yeah. And you're like, what is it that Worf is getting wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I, I think that Arnold is a bit more stoic 
quick in this one, but the thing that he does in this movie that he doesn't do a lot of later, once he kind of develops his uh, his movie persona, is the Arnold pain noises. Yeah, that you get a lot of. He gets it when he's in the gladiatorial arena and he's fighting that dude who's like filed his teeth to points. <laughs> and the Arnold pain noises, if you haven't seen Total Recall, which is where you're most likely to have no- recognize them, it's like. Listening to somebody torture a bear. <laughs> it's, it's unlike no, I anything. Th- I just think it's like it's like terrible yodeling is what it's like. <laughs> and he has a couple of scenes where he does it. Uh, there's the scene, of course, where, you know, Sven Ole Thorsen, welcome back to the show, Sven. Yeah, this is our first on-screen role together. Where he's been outed trying to infiltrate the Holy Mountain Temple, and uh, Sven is stepping on his hand after they've clearly beaten the shit out of him. That's a good beatdown. A lot of movies would not let their hero look that fucking awful after a beating. But, uh, yeah, Sven's stepping on his hand. Sven, by the way, has a giant fucking hammer. Yeah. Which is beautiful <laughs> in this movie. It's him and the other henchman who I... Ben Davidson, I think. Ben Davidson, who kind of looks like Gerard Depardieu if he had joined Spinal Tap. Isn't he a football player or something? He's some, he was an athlete. This is what I'm saying. is like This movie is packed with people who are stuntmen and athletes and not actors. But there's a couple – Sven has one really good moment as an actor in this movie that I genuinely love. It's when they're – you know, the the three main heroes, Conan, Valeria, and Sobotai, yeah. uh, they've, they've infiltrated uh, the temple. And uh, there's an orgy happening in the middle, and there's that big pillar. And they just go around and start cutting throats. And that, this is something, again, this is the John Milius that, that makes it work, is that Conan is not going to call everyone out to have honorable combat. He'll cut a couple throats. So people don't really know what's happening, and there's already bodies piling up. And um, Sven runs out with his giant, you know, Mario mallet. And he takes a swing at Arnold. Arnold sidestep it, steps the, the hammer, and it hits that big stone pillar in the middle of the room, and it cracks again because Arnold's already dropped that giant cauldron on it. And a couple more, like one more time that that hammer hits and the column comes down and this chunk of it hits the other henchman in the head. It looks like just murdered him. And Sven has this look on his face of, oh, shit. And it's it's not necessarily just, you know, fear for his friend. It's, it has a look that just goes, I'm going to get in trouble for this. And it's such a beautiful little organic moment that you usually don't give a henchman of just, oh, God, and you kind of especially see him... to silent henchmen. They say not a single word through yeah. the entire movie, and he still looks guilty when Thulsa Dune comes in and says, "Like now, we will teach them to be afraid of the dark." And he still looks like, "Oh God, the boss is pissed. The boss is pissed. Is he going to ask about the pillar?" Well, you got the weird <laughs> thing where Thulsa Dune bends over and helps him up. Yeah, like this, this weird things that you wouldn't normally assume that they would put in it, but that were clearly a conscious choice for them to do. Obviously, right? oh, he treats his followers like shit, but he's actually a pretty good boss to his yeah. lieutenants. He's the Hank Scorpio. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's just he is a pretty good boss. He's like, no, no, help our friend up, help him up. And uh, I think that I think the se- I actually think that the the set, not just the sets, but the set cult, the sort of snake cult thing is probably the most fascinating element here, not only because it weaves in that level of, like, the, it weaves in the sorcery part to the sword and sorcery part of this genre, um, but also, like, um, uh, the the architecture that they that they sort of invent around it. So there's a couple there's a couple places where I think the, the architecture and the world building shine. One of them is the tomb that he falls into, which is, like, the Atlanteans. 
So oh, where he finds a sword. Yeah, where his where he he says Crom, but I, forever I thought it was Crom that he was talking about. But no, it's just some dead Atlantean, and Atlanteans are the are the race that is extinct in his time. This they is, are the race of King Cull. And oh. there's a good chance that that was an Easter egg for the Howard folks. Oh. I don't think anybody ever comes out and says, well, the Atlantean king was Cull. Cull was Conan's predecessor mm-hmm. in Howard's fictional world by, you know, a few hundred years or a thousand years. or I forget. I have to go home and look it up. Right. But, <laughs> so there's a good chance he's using Cull's sword in this. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I mean, so they, they the way the, of the types of architecture that they actually try to sort of make that don't already exist, that aren't natural sort of features, um, there's sort of that Atlantean tomb that does look different than everything else in there. Mm-hmm. And there are this, I think there are basically two or three different sets that are sort of the set cult. And then there's the outdoor sort of Stonehenge burial ground that they have this the stand the standoff at the end you know the showdown at the end um like they amelia uh, says that he uh, he he wanted them to design sets temple to uh be very lenny reifenstahl <laughs> which is like, <laughs> come again, on john that, that's a thing that you're only gonna get with milius you gotta right. say give the give the man some credit you know his, got, his fascism can create good things it does all of it does feel really fucking scary and creepy and dangerous yeah it does yeah. It's like, you know, this he could have been running for office. This is where we want Milius. Uh, now more than ever. Or he could John have been Milius. writing really crazy manifestos to the newspaper while threatening to blow up federal buildings. So, you know, I'd rather he make sword and sorcery films. Well, yeah, that's the part I that's the, making sword and sorcery films is a better idea. Changing the world is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you have the power of, you know, I again, getting back to that riddle of steel, you have one guy saying it's flesh, another guy saying it the steel is what you control there is an ending to this movie that implies that there's an answer that's a third way but i can't figure out what it is because in the end arnold was able to break his father's sword when it's wielded by the bad guy Mm -hmm. he cuts it right through the middle in that last battle so steel is not the answer flash is not necessarily the answer what is the unity answer? i mean unity this is the th- and i don't know i don't know if this is very unconan like but it's clear that conan is only really able to o- overpower um dulce doom and his his the, his might by the combined force of his subatai and uh was it uh, i'm not sure what the word was it the mako's character uh, he's just called the wizard he's he, he gets a name in destroyer and i forget what the name actually is and then of course valeria coming back as a Valkyrie, I guess is I don't know I don't know how John Milius just sort of inserted Valkyries as a uh, as a Germanic uh, Blavatsky style like mythology into this, but you know like, there is it's actually consistent. kind of a, it I'm, actually I'm assuming that he's riffing on the Queen of the Black Coast when mm-hmm. Belit comes back from the dead to, in the hour of need to save her best beloved or something. Mm-hmm. It, just, it was just kind of a mashup. That was what I took it as. Yeah, it was just nicking another riff out of the. Stories. Well, Milius loved Viking stuff, and so there's a lot of stuff that kind of looks Nord, Nord, Nordic. He does stuff. mention Valhalla being part of yeah, Krom's yeah. religion, which isn't. I think no. Krom is from a misty mountain in the books. No, well, the whole thing is that Howard's hand wave was to have everything sound like something, right? Mm. But never actually name things. So that's why Conan gets away with a lot more. 
like racism and misogyny sure. and weirdness that it was all through Howard's pulp work, but everybody screams and, and has a fit over what's going on in his short stories like Black Canaan set in Louisiana in the early 1900s because, it's, you know, he's out and out using the N-word right and left. But in the Conan's world, they're just Cushites. <clears throat> you know, and you can talk about those those miserable Stygian you know, two-faced, lying reptiles. Right. And it's nobody gets their knickers in a twist because there's no league of Stygian voters out there to have a tantrum. <laughs> not <Right>. yet. <laughs> I'm sure I'm, it's coming. I'm not writing anything out right now. Well, not when Flat Earth is making a big comeback. I guess you can't. <laughs> but yeah, it's, what I kind of love is the there is a lot of great world building. You're talking again about the sets. The entrance to the Mountain of Power yeah. Is one of the coolest looking sets. I've had that huge staircase. There's like a snake motif going up both sides of the stairs, that big pool at the bottom. It also gets around having to build an entire, you know, castle where you just build an entrance to a mountain and then the inside of the mountain you can build a set somewhere else. Right. But it, it, it was just still looked, a huge undertaking, though. Oh I mean, God, you, it looks you, incredible. they were saving it to just, you know, because they could have done a matte painting or whatever or, or a foreground model, which I think is what they did some of the, the villages with. Um, also, the Wheel of Pain, too, at the beginning, which becomes which the which is, you know, is the, the 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 like the grain, the grain wheel that he pushes when he's a kid and he basically bulks up. Um he has like the little wheel of pain amulet around his neck until uh, Valeria dies, and I guess the wheel of pain is his god at that point, or at least his totem. I don't know what it is. Weird. There's there's lots of strange little the symbology. They interestingly enough they do play with symbology as well. Uh, uh, lots of different types of symbols, um, and they seem to be uh, you know it's a it's a it's sort of a polytheistic world, and so. Uh, they always have that moment where gods and beliefs are battling with each other for for dominance. I, I like that. I think I think it's I do too. clever. That's that's straight up Howard. That yeah. was he was doing that. So, you know, that's here's my issue is that he he takes all these things from the original stories, but then he repurposes them into a narrative about a guy that, to my mind, is not Conan at all. The idea that Conan would even the idea of a Conan story where he has to reach within himself and pull out some inner, you know, awakening or some epitome realization moment, turning point where suddenly, you know, he can overcome the thing and do the hero's journey. That's not Conan. He could give a shit about that. <laughs> He's not really a character for personal growth. No, absolutely not. The, the, the And Howard was very candid about this in interviews. He he basically said Conan the Barbarian has no inner life at all. And And somebody said, well, really? And Howard said, well, basically, I'm not smart enough to write stories about the hero who thinks his way out of things. So I just figure it's easier to write a story about a guy who cuts, hits and slashes his way out. Well, that that's funny, because in the uh, in the commentary, Milius says, I quote, Conan is a man of deep philosophies. And I'm thinking, no, he's not. He no, actually no, isn't. No, he's, he's the he's, opposite. No, he's he's <sighs> tactics. Conan is tactics. Mm hmm. He's a he's a guy that he will come up with very creative ways for dispatching human beings and have a lot to say about the various ways or weapons that he has. But he's uh -huh. not a guy that's ever going to hold court uh, talking about deep thought or the question and nature of violence and human nature. He's just going <laughs> to want another horn of ale. And he's very well, much. A here's here's my idea of Conan. Conan is the idea is the guy who when. 
the let's let's say there's some sort of Hyborian age equivalent of an uh, I don't know uh, Charlie Rose interviewing him <laughs> and, and, and Charlie Rose so so there's been a lot of death in your history Conan what do you what do you think about that and Conan would say something like well really when it comes to death I think I'm a broadsword man <laughs> I think that's I think that works for me I think that's 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 the most you know the best value per pound for death dealing. <laughs> you know, it, it, the idea that there's a philosophy there would just be completely over right. his head. He would just fly right past is, it. Is there, is there a, like a similar problem to telling Conan stories as there is to say like Judge Dredd stories where to kind of to kind of really be on Conan's side or to really be on Judge Dredd's side is to be like, yeah, I think I, I think I, you could you could just murder everyone. I think well, you got to be okay with that. It's the same thing like we talked about when we did the episode on vigilantes. Is you have to create a world that's so awful that this kind of person is not only okay, it's okay to be this person, but it may even be the smartest thing to be this person. That this mm. world is so amoral that. Conan is much more honest and less of a bullshitter, and he won't betray you in ways that others do in these kinds of worlds that um, you kind of the way he kills people is so much less awful than, say, melting them down into that green stew full of bones (laughs) that they're serving (laughs) at that orgy. Oh, God. That are, before Arnold kicks it down the stairs, right. but it's like there's hints of something so much worse. That Arnold, right. you know, Conan is not the sort of person who would create a bunch of human sacrifices. He wouldn't kill people just for the pleasure. Somebody has to fucking piss him off. That Conan is kind of like the big daddy in the Bioshock game. That mm-hmm. if you give him a wide berth, he'll leave you alone and just look kind of scary. But the minute you take any kind of hostile action. That will be the last hostile action you take. <laughs> but speaking of, of hostile action, yes, isn't the violence in this movie again just saying, do you have to turn off part of your brain to enjoy these kind of stories that have a kind of retrograde philosophy behind them? I think, yeah. And it's that lizard part of the brain that probably enjoys this movie the most. Because the violence, especially the sound design behind the violence, kind of emphasizing the carnage, is really, really satisfying to that lizard brain. Yeah, I think they. I think there is some. I mean, if you discount something like Enter the Dragon, which was a type of way of doing on-screen violence and action in a way that's quick and satisfying and feels visceral, um, and that was f- a few years before this one. Um, it took a long time for movies to feel where the, where the violence didn't feel like a like a Sam Peckinpah movie. Sure, it's violent, but the blood is pink or something, yeah. and you know, you're just like, this doesn't. This one actually looks. The things explode. Like, yeah. you know, there's blood packs all over the place. But it isn't just regular blood packs. I mean, there's little chunks of meat in those blood packs. So it's like little bits and nibbly things are flying out of you as you're getting hacked. Yeah. When Arnold's fighting the guy who kind of looks like Gerard Depardieu, you know, <laughs> if he had joined <laughs> if he joined Spinal Tap, um, he looks like he is cutting little loose bits out of him as his sword comes back. Like he goes, crunk. And it makes this sound like you're hitting a jack-o'-lantern full of ground beef with an axe. <laughs> and there's these little pieces that are in there. It's not just clear red liquid. It's stuff. It's, there's viscera in this movie. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. when he hits the ground after finally killing him, he leaves the frame, but bits of him come back up into the frame. <laughs> so this movie, it just kind of revels in its R rating in a way that... Maybe it's just that I'm so used to everyone nowadays trying to hit that perfect PG-13 right on the line. Mm. I think that's probably part of it. Certainly seeing it in the theater, 
um, just it did not bother me in the slightest. I just, you know, Howard was a guy that wrote about, you know, cleaving skulls and bits of brain flying. So I just wasn't even really. It's like, yeah, that's that's what I paid to see. This is the world that we're living in. The, but the, the woman that was with me was so horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> this was not a first date film, was it, Greg? No, no, no. But, uh, the, no, the joke was that it was her treat. No, <laughs> nice. I know oh. you love these books. Let's go opening <laughs> night, and we'll have dinner, and it'll be fun. And, and then we're there, and I, she looked at me a little differently afterwards. It was one of those, like... Wait, I had no idea. I thought it was like the golden voyage of Sinbad or something. <laughs> well, there's... Because she'd asked me, and I said, well, it's kind of like Harryhausen, but instead yeah. of, you know, a clean-cut adventurer, it's kind of a burly Texas road guy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not clean-cut. It's definitely an open, oozing sore cut. So it kind yeah. of makes sense that if you kind of follow this, the sort of film lineage, so it's Dino De Laurentiis, you know, oh, who, was a, yeah. who was a notorious Italian producer and filmmaker. Um, they actually wanted to get Ennio Morricone to do the music for this, by the way. I wonder way. what that would have sounded so like. It, 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 so it's just, it, this definitely feels like like a... Uh, predecessor, not a predecessor, uh, uh, what comes after, like uh, the sort of wave of the types of violent films from hyper violence, hyper surreal violence, like from the man with the no name, you know, from spaghetti westerns, because this is something of a Western. And this is in that vein where we can do real violence, like real satisfying violence. And it doesn't have to be, I get shot and then my hand covers the part on my chest that I get shot and then I fall over and I'm dead. And if you're really risking it, you have a little bit of blood between your fingers. No, that right. hand comes away in this movie. Right. Um, it's it, it definitely feels like a straight line from violent westerns spaghetti westerns into the 80s and where there are there are fewer and fewer rules and now it's just like well of course we're gonna have people impaled through the chest with a little like a trap somewhere of course we're gonna of course we're gonna take heads off in this movie we're absolutely we're going to yeah it's there's there's bits that are just kind of awful ways to kill people again we talk about luke skywalker kills a lot of people in star wars but once laser hits plastic armor you're just instantly dead there are (laughs) scenes in this movie where Guys get impaled and they don't die right away. They don't just, the life just instantly lose, like their life bar went all the way to zero and they just they blink out. Sven mm. uh, gets impaled and he's alive for like 30 seconds. <laughs> and Arnold just kind of sits there watching him. <laughs> and there's another bit, I think, in the, the fight at the temple where he has sideswipes this guy through the abdomen with his sword and it doesn't cut him in half, but it cuts this big gash in him, and the guy collapses against the wall, slowly slides down the wall, looking at himself opening up, and Arnold's already moved on to the next guy. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's ugly violence, but it's, it's also not so cleanly choreographed. It's that, really not, but the here's the thing. There's, there's movies that do horrible violence as a condemnation, and then there's movies that do horrible violence as almost like a celebration, like slasher movies or Saw or something like right. that. This is like, to me, this is like some sort of weird John Milius, I am going to show America that sword fighting hurts. <laughs> Like it's some sort of statement of all you pansies with your three musketeers and your, your, you know, man in the iron mask and count of Monte Cristo, whack, 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 Basil Rathbone. No, no, no. When you hit somebody with a sword, this happens. 
feast your eyes, America. Face the evil. You know, it, it has that weird sort of mission statement feel to it, which is one of the reasons why it doesn't work for me as a Conan movie, because mm-hmm. it's it's almost like it's it's deliberately trolling all the movie audiences that think it's going to be a fun swashbuckling I, I adventure. Th- I think Milius absolutely was trying to do trying to stick it in your eye. I think he, he absolutely was trying to do that. I mean... I said about um, Indiana Jones that I thought that Indiana Jones is a kind of a movie that's a love letter to stuntmen. I mean, this is too. This is this is kind of that movie that is, uh, you know, he he tried to make the lead actress. He tried to make Arnold's character, the Valeria character, and Subutai character. They were all not stunt people. They were just athletes who um, he he made them do months and months of work to base for them to basically do stunts on camera like stunt people do this all this movie was is is, with the exception of max von Sydow and james earl jones is just doing stunt work over and over and over again and i think i think that's that's i think that's actually what's quite impressive about it um and i think what is impressive for arnold schwarzenegger because i don't think he ever does this many stunts in any movie following because he got so he got so beat up on this and he probably realized he couldn't do this every single movie and be able to keep going you know who could I mean, he sits to see him ride a camel that looks at one point like it's honestly going to throw him off. <laughs> it, and I guess he'd never even seen a camel in person before they have him ride a camel like that. And I'm just like, oh, that that doesn't look like that was a stunt. That looks like that's something that almost happened and he narrowly avoided it. <laughs> I'm and, kind of awestruck that they got him to come back and do another one. Yeah. yeah. You know. There's a couple other things that this movie has sort of to kind of close out our main discussion. Is there more sex in this movie than any other Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? Because Arnold, even though he's naked a lot in his movies, doesn't really have sex. There's something weirdly asexual about him that even in movies where like Commando, where he has a daughter, you don't actually imagine him being involved in any kind of love scene. <laughs> I, you know, Commando also has, you know, a female character who sort of co-stars with him, played by Radon Chung, and there's it's completely platonic. His characters are almost always completely platonic. Mm-hmm. They never hint in Predator that he may end up, you know, hooking up with the rebel that they have, who's the other survivor at the end of the movie. There's never a sense of that. But in this movie... Arnold is not only nude, but he's involved in several frequently just on the edge of super creepy sex scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With the witch, most especially. Yeah. The witch who he throws into the fire after she turns into a monster, half, you know, mid-coitus. <laughs> uh, there's the slave girl, which is at the beginning of that, where yeah. she's led into his cage. And it looks like just for a second that he might be a gentleman, <laughs> then turns out he's not. <laughs> But that what we all know from our Conan discussion, though, that's also part of Conan's character. Yes, yeah, again, yeah, that's, that's that's completely part of Conan. Here's yeah. the weird thing: Milius put in the movie all the stuff that's just casually alluded to in the stories, his youth, his his time as a slave, his his liaisons with various women. They were they were always off stage mm-hmm. in the stories. They were always alluded to. We never saw them. And he put all of them in the movie, and the weird thing is, for me, that's what's slowing it down. Mm. I don't care mm. about Conan's tormented youth. I really don't. <laughs> I could give a tin shit. I want to see Conan be Conan. Conan being Conan. The Conan Conaning the crap out of people. Exactly. I, I only have one more thing that I had came up with. Uh, so, as for, for Arnold lore, 
Um, this is one of the things when a certain edition of this came out had the commentary where Arnold was doing the commentary, oh. and it sort of started. You can you can go on YouTube and see it. There's like a supercut of Arnold's sort of performance on this, and it's basically him going going like, oh, that's a beautiful shot. Oh, yes, I remember this shot, like, over and over again. And it kind of just seems like he doesn't remember anything, and he's just sort of reacting to it and going, he's like, oh, I, this is a, this is a great shot, where he doesn't know anything. It's like he, he's completely, he's gone complete amnesia. Um, if you actually watch interviews that he'd done years after the fact, that's not true. He has, he has a lot of stuff that he remembers, a lot of uh, inside bits that he has in the story. My sort of hot take for him being the John Madden of DVD commentary is that um, he shares royalty rights for all these movies when they get re-released on Blu-ray or whatever. So basically, he's just acting as hype man for his own movies. He's being like, oh, look at this shot. It's so great. Oh, I love it when I cleave him open right there. That's so funny. Like, he's just being his own hype man, I think. And he lets the other person do the film historian part of the DVD commentary. It's it's kind of a shame on one level because you want to hear the actor tell personal stories about how they did something. And sometimes his commentary is decidedly unhelpful. Yes. <laughs> it's, it feels almost like commentary for the blind, and he's just explaining what's happening on screen right. while it's happening, or spoiling something before it's about to happen. Pretty much. It's, <laughs> it's just sort of strange. So I guess with that, let's get into the two big questions, of course. Oh, yes. I guess the first question, Greg, is, is this a good movie? You know, I was thinking about that all the way down here because I knew it was coming. And there's an anecdote that uh, about Dashiell Hammett mm. and Lillian Hellman. When Lillian Hellman wrote her first play, um, I think it was called The Little Foxes, and she gave the draft to, to Hammett to read. And Hammett read it and read it, and his expression got angrier and angrier and angrier. And finally picked it up and threw it across the room. And Hellman, of course, as a, a the junior writer of this partnership, was just completely horrified and mortified. She said, "Well, is it bad? Is it that bad?" And he and he said, "It's worse than bad. It's almost good." <laughs> <laughs> and that's really the feeling that I have about this movie. It's almost good. It's almost Conan. It's almost what I wanted, but not quite. Is it a good movie? Objectively, I. I got to take the fifth on that. Oh, I wow. am so invested in Conan the Barbarian and Robert E. Howard. I have such a, a clear idea in my head of what it should be that it's, I almost don't think I'm capable of backing away from it and saying, well, objectively, all right, it's not Conan, but it's okay. It's, it's a fair movie. And, and if you really pin me to the wall, I think I would have to admit that. But I still don't like it on such a visceral level that I I can't <laughs> okay. I, I I can't really give you a ruling. I guess it's probably a good movie. It's certainly a competent movie. Yeah, it's well made. There's all the stuff that we've been talking about that worked that w- that was done well. Um, do they add up to a good movie? Not for me. Mm. It's almost good. Okay, it's maddening and it's almost goodness. <laughs> Mike, how about you? How about you? I uh, yeah I. I actually went into this having not seen this movie for maybe almost 20 years. Wow. I saw this in my early 20s, and I didn't grow up seeing this. I saw more clips of Conan the Destroyer on cable. Sure. So that's kind of what I was sort of used to. So I guess my memory is sort of polluted by a lot of that, a lot of the closer to what you would expect a mid-80s fantasy movie starring a mostly naked guy slashing people with a sword to be like. And 
I've got to say, this was a lot better than my memory had. I went into this expecting sort of cheap Beastmaster sets right. <laughs> and it to be something where it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's it's starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is definitely a step up from like Reb Brown or these other guys that right. are starring in movies like Yor or Deathstalker and the Warriors from Hell or yeah. Quest of the Delta Knights. But <laughs> it's a movie that I think... These the wor- are all real and we all know them. That's yes. kind of yes. sad. <laughs> yes. In... It feels like a real movie. Fantasy, I think, is an easy thing to screw up in live action because it's so easy to point out where it's like, okay, we're in the California desert with a shirtless guy again. Okay, that's obviously a set. This is obviously a movie where the budget is such that characters are providing their own costumes. Quest of the Delta Knights is kind of famous for the bad guys and the principal actors have their own costumes provided for them, but all of their like heavies, their henchmen kind of look like they were just told to go to a costume shop <laughs> and get a costume that looks like it might work with a sword. So you get these hodgepodges of bad guys where it's like, "Oh, okay. This guy's a pirate, that's a sultan, that guy's a viking, and it doesn't really fit together and it you really see the edges of it, but Conan the Barbarian looks fucking great. Mm-hmm. The costumes are well thought out. Uh, the world doesn't only feel like it's well built, but it doesn't feel like a movie set because they weather it in the way that the original Star Wars is weathered. It feels like people have lived in this universe before you started watching a story take place there. And you don't get a lot of that. It isn't this clean, you know, people have dirt on their costumes. People have little scratches on their armor. Um, that's, and it's weird cause this is actually a place where, uh, Greg, the thing that you dislike is a thing that I like. I like this movie's willing to take its time on a shot. Conan mm. kind of riding through the plains with these yellow flowers on the ground on his <laughs> yeah. way to the mountain of power. Pretend, hippie undercover Arnold. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they really yeah. kind of take their place. Arnold sitting contemplatively that they let tension build in a way that I think a lot of movies today and a lot of audiences today would be impatient. Like the build-up to the Battle of the Mounds with all of the henchmen is fucking great. That you know that they're coming over the hill for like a minute and a half. That you spot them in the distance, they're coming, they're charging, and it keeps coming back to them, the building tension, the building tension, to the point that Arnold has quite possibly the greatest prayer in any movie ever. <laughs> yeah. And it really lets that movie moment build up where a lot of people want to just skip to the the good bits. And I thought that this was going to be a movie where those good bits would be spectacular and the bits in between would be boring, but it wasn't. I think a lot of it is they got really good actors. Again, Max von Sydow, James Earl Jones, they pulled this thing up a letter grade Mm -hmm. in roles that, you know, could otherwise be really kind of standard. You could just find a person, you know, from central casting that could do that. But they couldn't do it well. In a lot of ways, Arnold's the weakest part of the movie, but he's still a lot better than I thought he was going to be. Hmm. This is going to be a weird comparison, but it reminds me a little bit of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, (laughs) where the lead is probably the weakest part. the same way, for sure. Where you have the villain is really strong, the other characters are really strong, and they all kind of pull that person up. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't do it in a way that exposes that person's weaknesses. And I think that part is really great. I enjoyed this movie so much more than I thought I was. Mm. And it was a fantasy movie where I didn't see Vasquez Rocks. Right, 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 yeah. Well, points for that, for I, sure. And and I I, th- I think I have to agree. I mean, I think if you consider fantasy movies on film, and 
even before Lord of the Rings, there were precious few of them, right? They didn't. They're they're. Well, they weren't an they weren't a common genre of movie to film and if you set aside lord of the rings as uh, at the lord of the rings sort of series i think i think this is the only the only sort of fantasy story that sort of bubbles up to the top as being one that's sort of capably executed i mean maybe something like clash of the titans i guess but that's more of the harryhausen sort of style but still of of fantasy of fantasy movies that are sort of very well executed that make you feel like you're in another time and place and crazy magical things can actually happen um it's one of the it's one of the ones that you actually think of i think the i think the i like slow burn movies um and i think that so there's a, there's some part of the sort of deliberate slow storytelling that seems to be a little masturbatory to me. So in that respect, it's it's like get on with it. Some some of it is really just get on with it. That's sort that sort of bit. But I think I think everything else is is executed well enough. Um, I think they did really well with uh, actors who aren't actors. Um, Mako is the only sort of exception to that, which I think Mako is really good, except he's bordering on stereotype, um, which is a little uncomfortable. Um, but they, I think they do, I think they do a fantastic job of realizing it, um, of putting together a sort of a fantasy story that ends the way you would expect a fantasy story would, and then peppering it with just, with just enough performances to make it something that's memorable. Otherwise it would be Beastmaster two or whatever. Oh know? God, that is, that is the low bar. And that's what I was expecting again. Yeah. And you don't get shots like the death of Conan's mother in Beastmaster two. Yeah. Where they don't show her beheaded. You show basically from Conan, he's like, 10 years old his eyeline and he's holding his mother's hand the head goes through the frame really briefly and then mm-hmm. her body falls still holding the hand yeah this is a movie that's trying a lot harder than a lot of people in this time making fantasy movies would make it yeah that it's usually let's get a bunch of people in italy off a tiny budget starring a guy you've never heard of with a lot of cardboard sets yeah. <laughs> and this movie tries it tries really really hard and even in the place where it has limitations, I think it succeeds far more than it fails. Yeah. But I can see where Greg sees that like line of just like, it's almost good. <laughs> it's, I kind of have to separate myself from my love of Howard and Conan completely when judging this movie. Yeah. Cause I mean, uh, what is it that we constantly say about Arnold is that when people, um, when people end up talking about Arnold in a the movie, they forget the character's name and you just say Arnold. In a little bit in this, I I do catch myself saying Conan, but I was watching James Earl Jones do an interview about the uh, you know about working on the set and doing scenes, um, and he's talking about the plot and he uses Arnold interchangeably with Conan too. Yeah. So at least it has that it has that thing where this is almost like one of those one of those roles where he almost transcends just being like what's his name I don't fucking care it's Arnold Schwarzenegger um, mm-hmm. because he, he just and probably just because of the largesse of that character of the Conan character hardly that um, but this is the one time I think in, in, in that uh, you can say Arnold almost his, his sort of gravitas almost doesn't overtake the stature of the character so I gotta ask you this Greg if this was anything other than Conan let's just say it's a sword and sorcery movie starring a Conan-esque barbarian does that change your position on it? Not in a big way. Um, you know, I don't, I just don't love it as much as I, it, it, here's the thing. I, if, if I really am honest, I have to admit that I don't like this movie as much as I like, say, The Sword and the Sorcerer, mm. which is 
objectively in any kind of film critic you know objective view of filmmaking is a colossal steaming pile of shit of a movie but i just <laughs> am helplessly in love with it yeah. it's it's got that you know deranged hell for leather yeah. pulp sensibility and that's kind of what i want in a sword and sorcery movie yeah what i really want my platonic ideal is something with the the sort of floor it let's go feeling of the mm. sword and the sorcerer and i want it married to the the millious level of set and stunt work and everything yeah. and i want it to star jason momoa as conan that's what i yeah. want yeah let's get him back yeah let's please back. please give him a chance it wasn't his fault <laughs> never the actor's fault most of the time so it gets us to the second question. Uh, is Conan the Barbarian a good Arnold movie? Yeah. Is it in the canon? Uh, I guess I'll go first. Um, it, I, can, I, think, I kind of think it has to be. I kind of think that this is, the, this is the one role that really put Arnold up as superstar, a guy who can carry the entire movie himself, and who uses those natural assets of who he is, the Hulk, the hulking body, the voice... Um, his particular bit of physicality, and also his ability to his ability to actually do like he does, like he plays drunk, like falls asleep in his soup and that some is, stuff like that. I want a gif of that. There's just there's there's so much stuff on here where you're just like it, you're seeing both sides of Arnold. You're seeing motherfucking badass Arnold who dispatches the bad guys with abandon, um, and you're also seeing the lovable oaf who can actually who can actually be funny. You know, he can give those he can kind of ape for the camera a little bit when he needs to um i mean of course you and you won't you won't have arnold schwarzenegger without conan because it was sort of his breakout movie but i think it also at least sells all the parts that of arnold movies that are, are good which is you know you're gonna go there to watch him fucking dispatch um baddies you know uh in in short in short period of time very impressively usually without a shirt on and you're gonna get it you're gonna get it so it's definitely in the canon for me yeah, it's a good Arnold movie. Um, the the issue for me is that it's Arnold shouldn't fuck around with trying to be artistic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's kind of the problem here. It's a really good Arnold movie. It's everything Casey said. It's his breakout role. It shows that you know he's not an imbecile, which was the the stereotype beforehand. He was just the hulking lurch guy that was a prop that moved you know he wasn't he he actually could portray a character the fact that the character he portrays is not the one i wanted to see as a side issue he could do it but you know again the i don't think he should aspire to be artistic i have i much prefer and there are arnold movies i like i really like the running man i really like eraser i think Mm. eraser is a Mm. terrific movie Mm. you know in in that same kind of sort of deranged forward momentum way that I really like that's in the running man or any racer or in a lot of these other actioners that inspired you guys to even start doing the show. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's, that's, that's like embryonic in Conan mm-hmm. the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. He's not kind really of a, there. He's kind of a proto Arnold. Yeah. He hasn't really developed the persona. He's not quippy in this movie. No, no, no there's not. There's the, it's almost like everybody, all the notes from the studio were probably telling Milius to just, don't let him talk. Yeah, yeah I get I, that, that. That's really the vibe that I'm getting off of this. That was a funny thing because I, I also consider this a good Conan or Arnold movie. Uh, I really do. And I think that the part that impressed me the most was the fact that he wasn't talking. 
and that it gave him a chance. It gave him no choice but to act non-verbally. And he impressed me a lot more being this is 1982 Arnold versus like 1996 Arnold. Right. Where I know he can do it by 1996. But in 1982, I'm like, well, how much English does he really speak? They don't know yet that his accent is a a boon rather than a millstone. <laughs> hmm. That his accent makes every catchphrase sound great. And I don't think they ever really discover that yet until Terminator. That's no. the point where him saying even the simplest line like, I'll be back, which is not a mic drop line in the mouth of any other actor, right. becomes a catchphrase. And so aside from that, I mean, he gets to kill a lot of people. And I think aside from maybe the original Terminator, this is probably the highest Arnold body count oh yeah by far of any movie by far and it's the bloodiest because in terminator he mostly shoots people aside from the guy that he punches through the chest of (laughs) at the bus station but this is really bloody i mean he not only kills you he kills you in a way that you'll be on the ground knowing that you're dying for like a minute and it's it's kind of great, but I'd say the best Arnold thing, aside from the look on his face before his face goes down into the bowl of soup, which is wonderful, is the outfit that he's wearing when he's brought before King Osric. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it is a thing of beauty because it is like an open-chested tunic. <laughs> it's made of burgundy braided yarn, and it's tied together in the middle with a giant leather studded belt like he'd gotten this thing by knocking out the champ. <laughs> it is beautiful. And it's maybe one of my, it's up there for like incredibly insane, but somehow it works on this actor costumes up there with James Bond and Goldfinger wearing that like terry cloth onesie. <laughs> where I'm like it it looks terrible, and I'd never go out in public with it, but privately, I'd like to try that on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think it gives me a lot of the things I want from Arnold, and I think it actually told a lot of future filmmakers what they could do with Arnold. Yeah. Yeah. The look on his face before he goes into the soup definitely got him some comedy chances later, where people go, that looks great. We can get him to do that again. So... I, I I like this movie. I yeah. like it way better than I thought I it's, would. It, it's hard. For, it would would have been hard for us to sort of be honest and go into this and really want to tear this apart as being sort of un Arnold, um, because it became such it's such so quintessential for how we how we would view uh, Arnold as a pop culture, but also for how anyone who casted him afterwards would have seen this and been like, oh yeah, I, you know, I can see that. I like that part there. I like that part there. Let's see how we can move that in there. He Milius was sort of the first guy to really you know take the take the toy out and and actually play with it play with it well exercised him the way that he needed to be exercised exactly um, like level up like greg said they're not just using him like an attraction or a plot a prop using him like an actor who can actually bring something aside from his physicality to a role so i i like this movie a lot i i can do the thing that you you were able to do greg is i can separate my 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 conan fan from my arnold fan I can draw a little line in the middle and keep them separated, and I kind of have to. I have to put up that blinder, but with it, I fucking love it. So, Greg, I want to thank you for joining us. Always a treat. And if folks want to find out you, sir, Greg Hatcher, on the internet and the stuff you're working on, where can they find you? Well, I ha- I'm at atomicjunkshop.com once a week, a lot, along with a lot of other talented guys. You don't have to stop by just to see me. Um, I have a lot of colleagues that write fun stuff, too. 
Um, the books that I'm in, the various pulp adventures and uh, the Sherlock Holmes mysteries and so on are all available at Amazon.com. Um, Never heard of that. They're, Let's check it out. Uh, <laughs> the nice thing is they're all on Kindle now, so you don't have nice. to break your wallet on the, the trade paperbacks. Uh, the Kindles are much more reasonable. Nice. And, uh, and there's a bunch of new ones coming. I have a Western that I'm wrapping up that I want to call it Hell Canyon Blues, but the, the editor says, no way, it sounds like an old country song. <laughs> I, I maintain that it sounds like a Tarantino movie, but he's the editor and he's paying me and he's going to put it in print, so I have to suck it up and think of something else. Well. <laughs> but, uh, but that's going to be wrapping up pretty soon. Awesome. Absolutely. Please go check out his stuff. And uh, thank you, guys. And Casey? Well, crush, crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of their women. Obviously. Wrong! No, wait. That, <laughs> I love that. Wrong! The guy, who, the guy who answers the question right before Conan, it's so McLaughlin group the way he's cut off. I love it. So, wrong! Pap Buchanan, what is best in life? <laughs> That's a scary answer. <laughs> but we'll definitely see you guys uh, next month. We've got another Arnold movie coming up, and uh, I think... I want to say you'll. I think you'll like the episode. You might not like the movie. So. Yeah, un- undoubtedly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Greg, and uh, we'll catch you guys next month. Podcast of La Vista Baby is a production of Radio versus the Martians and is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in Tacoma, Washington, and edited by Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by James Wetzel with opening narration by Dan Lombardo. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can find us online at podcastalavistababy.com and radioversusthemartians.com. idea before I have no tongue for it no one not even you will remember if we were good men or bad why we fought or why we died no all that matters is that two stood against many that's what's important Barbara pleases you Kram so grant me one request grant me revenge if you do not listen, then the hell with you.